So, Gabe, do we have corrections? Oh, God. We do have corrections. <laughs> we have a single correction. Um, last week, I said that the name of the group of people, agricultural workers in Dorset, who formed a combination in their own interest in the 1830s, I, I mistakenly said that it should be pronounced Tolpiddle, the Tolpiddle Martyrs. And I guess I just completely fabricated that. I don't know where I got that pronunciation. It just seemed right to me. I thought I'd gotten it from somewhere. <laughs> um, it just seemed like one of those English pronunciations that they do for some reason. But anyway, uh-huh. it's wrong. It's pronounced, apparently, we're told, the way that it's spelled, Tolpuddle. So... You know, correction issued. Apologies. It's weird that I can't remember from the movie how they pronounced it. Well, maybe that's where I got it. I think they maybe say Tolpital in the movie. But, you know, the whole movie is such a blur. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that was our business that we had at the top of the show. I think that's the only correction we have. So why don't we get started? So this week we're reading chapters 8 and 9 of The Making of the English Working Class. Um, Last week we finally got into part 2. This week is a continuation um, of that. And chapter 8 is about artisans and others. Chapter 9 is about the weavers. So let's just jump into it. Chapter 8. What do you think? I feel like this is really where Thompson's heart is in a certain way. He's trying to deal with kind of material conditions in a way that he didn't do in part one. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it seems to me that because skilled artisans, right, it's in the nature of that kind of work, and we can talk more about this, uh, that traditions are passed down, right? That's that's how the skill is learned. It's how the trade is reproduced over time. Mm-hmm. It constitutes the kind of economic sociology of that kind of work. So it means that there are these long memories, right, in all these dense communities. Uh, and it just, these kinds of workers who are at the heart of these two chapters, I feel like exemplify most powerfully the set of things that Thompson is interested in, which is kind of continuity of community experience, uh, solidity of kind of community morality. Um, so I like these chapters, and it seemed to me that, you know, especially nine, which we'll get to about the weavers, that, that describes, but eight has that quality too. And it also really is just a bonanza of great lists of craft uh, traits. Yeah, for people who love the lists in this uh, book, this chapter, and the next one are like a gold mine. Um, why don't we start with, so the first block quote here. Um, on page 235, for example, the typical London skilled workman was neither brewery hand, shipwright, nor silk weaver, but either a member of the building trades or a shoemaker, tailor, cabinet maker, printer, clockmaker, jeweler, baker, to mention the chief trades of which had over 2,500 adult members in 1831. So those are the people we're going to be hearing about in the chapter. Yeah, and I think... This in this chapter we're really in London, especially right. This is he, Thompson mm-hmm. is very clear that um, the trades the, or the skilled trades exist around the country to some degree, but London I think he calls the Athens of the artisans. Yes, yes, exactly. And he starts uh, right below that quote with uh, the question of how the price of labor in of skilled craft labor is set in this kind of interesting discussion of customary price. 
um, which is, you know, at least the claim here is that there's not really market determination of prices in this line, in these lines of production at this point. And in some way, what the whole chapter is about is the collapse of these customs and the assertion of market price, right, over the ways that these workers have managed to regulate their the economy and whatever whatever they produce. Um, but the customary price kind of persists uh, for quite a long time. On the next page, he writes, customary traditions of craftsmanship normally went together with vestigial notions of a fair price and a just wage. Social and moral criteria, subsistence, self-respect, pride in certain standards of workmanship, customary rewards for different grades of skill. These are as prominent in early trade union disputes as strictly economic arguments. Sturt's wheelwright's shop perpetuated much older practices and was country cousin to the city industry of coach building in which in the early 19th century, there was a veritable hierarchy whose wage differentials can scarcely be justified on economic grounds. And then he kind of breaks down all of the fine gradations of uh, wages through the kind of skill hierarchy in wheelmaking. I think it's worth saying, um, since outside of the building trades, we don't really have uh, anything like this structure left anymore. Um, although it's notable that we still do actually have something like it in the building trades. Uh, but just the basic structure of the skilled trades uh, is consists of three parts, right? Which is apprentice, journeyman, and master craftsman. Um, and the master craftsman may himself participate in the production of goods. I mean, he may actually be a worker at some level, but he also more or less employs the others um, in various degrees of subordination. Uh the journeyman being in the middle position and the and the apprentice at the lowest level, right? And this this structure is kind of passed down from, I think, the Middle Ages, as I understand it, um, and lives on into the early 19th century as the basic organization of production in many, many industries, as we see in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Right. And now, at least when I think of my own writing about labor, it's pretty much just the building trades that I'm thinking of when it comes to that structure. I mean, academia sort of has these qualities in certain ways, but it's different in other ways. I'm sure there are other other industries we could come up with, but yeah, the trades, the building trades are the obvious ones that are still with us today. Yeah. It's funny. It's really, it was hard for me to wrap my head around the idea, even though I knew this from already other parts of the books, but that the price was completely and wages were based on custom and not output cost as he puts it he says i doubt if there was a tradesman in the district who really knew what his output cost or what his profits were or if he was making money or losing money on a particular job this just seems so completely foreign to me as far as how organizational um structures work within industries yeah i mean it's interesting right and like in a in a uh world of production in which the employers where they exist are themselves also workers at some level. And, you know, I also think we, uh, we tend to have a narrative and obviously this is one of the kind of main arcs of Thompson's argument is pushing you back against this. We tend to have a narrative of, uh, workers organization as something that gets stronger over the course of industrialism, um, or industrial capitalism. But, you know, here it's clear that, uh, there have been forms of organization among among artisans going back a very long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some cases, you kind of see them emerge in a relatively recent form in like the late 18th century, it seems like, in other cases. I imagine that there's a pretty direct genealogy from a medieval guild, right, in which like the king gave rights to, you know, tradesmen in a particular line of production, Medievalists can correct me on this. Uh, the king gave rights to, medi- to tradesmen in a particular line of production to control and organize their industry. Um, and the guild structure really descended pretty directly, I think, in some cases into uh, trade union structure. So that this whole chapter and the next one uh, are really about trade union struggles in a period in which, you know, industrial production, as we kind of think of it, really has barely taken off. Right, and we should talk about the Combination Acts because they come up a lot in this chapter and the next one. The Combination Acts, right, were about outlawing trade unions. Yeah, and in in response to uh, the kind of upstairs of Jacobinism that the first part of the book is about, yeah. Right. And then they're repealed, but a new form is eventually passed, I think, in 1824 um, that restricts 
again, trade unionism, it doesn't outlaw it, but that sort of limits what can be bargained over. Um, and it's just, I think, a useful thing to have in mind as far as when these struggles are happening. In, in part, they're happening around and in response to and in advance of these repeals or passages of new laws around what it would be early trade unionism. Yeah, I mean, just like, you know, from the labor history that I do know better of our country, um, the first piece of federal legislation that had any bearing on trade unionism that I know of is the Sherman Antitrust Act, uh, which is 1881, I think. And it's a repressive law, obviously. I mean, it was, you know, an antitrust law that winds up getting used to crush workers' cartels, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's not until the 1920s uh, that there's a federal piece of legislation that's remotely favorable. I mean, not that these laws are favorable um, to workers organizing. But uh, the idea that there is a kind of inherited tradition of with, you know, some like customary legitimacy of trade unionism, uh, even if it's undergoing intense repression legally and otherwise, um, I don't know. I think it's a re- kind of remarkable context. It's one of the most interesting things about the book. Right. I mean, he even talks, so he's already talking about this on 237. He says, conditions were supported by the activities of a benevolent society of coachmakers, and they survived the conviction under the combination acts of the general Sir- secretary and 20 other members of the so- society in 1819. So at this point, not only are people being convicted for the sort of early forms of organization, but also the next line he says there, there's a use of the term in this block quote that I just skipped and went to the next part of the term aristocracy to reference a skilled artisan, which I thought was amazing because it's another term that the labor aristocracy is something that I think of as much more of a 20th century concept. Um, And here it is being used in this block quote from you know, the late 19th century, mid-19th century. Yeah, and he engages with that 20th century context slightly elliptically on 237. He says, It is sometimes supposed that the phenomenon of the labor aristocracy was coincident with the skilled trade unionism of 1850s and 1860s, or was even the consequence of imperialism, which is Lenin's line, although he's not doesn't want to talk about Lenin here. Um, but in fact, there is both an old and a new elite of labor to be found in the years 1800 to 1850. The old elite was made up of master artisans who considered themselves as good, quote, good, as masters, shopkeepers, or professional men. Uh, in some industries, the craftsman's privileged position survived into workshop or factory production through the force of custom or combination and apprenticeship restriction or because the craft remained highly skilled and specialized, fine and fancy work in the luxury branches of the glass, wood, and metal trades. The new elite arose with new skills in the iron, engineering, and manufacturing industries. This is plain enough in engineering, but even in the cotton industry, we must remember the warning. We are not cotton spinners all. So there's a kind of acknowledgement here, which is, I think, also important, although he's not doesn't explore it fully, that the destruction of skill and the creation of new forms of skill and new forms of differentiation within the working class are both always proceeding at the same time. Uh, but what the chapter is really exploring is the, I mean, it seems to me, is the consequence of the basically destructive process, right? Right. And what's happening in sort of this fracturing of these groups uh, along skilled and less skilled lines, I think, is a big part of this chapter and the next one as well. Yeah. He keeps referring to it as an island of protected, skilled labor that is constantly trying to sort of evade the wider, um, what he calls, what the term is dishonorable um, industry, which is people who are not in the traditional apprenticeship sort of lineage. Yeah. So the basic story, right, is like the population increases really dramatically. Rural depopulation, emigration is uh, quite rapid as well. And so... The urban labor markets are just flooded. Yeah, I think so. And I do think, I mean, this comes up more pointedly in the next chapter on the weavers. But even here, he is at some pains to say uh, this is not being caused immediately by mechanization, right? By the rise of the steam engine um, or the variety of technologies that it enables. That those things occur in the midst of this process which has already been produced by enclosure, by the poor law, um, by the wars and the kind of political and economic consequences of the wars. 
Right. I mean, he. I think he shows this really well in the Weavers chapter, but just the idea that while there's some degree of truth to the fact that technology was sort of being hung over people's heads as a threat psychologically, really the reduction in wages is happening first. It's a political and ideological as well um, sort of process by which there's this, the, he talks about these ideas about the disciplining of poverty and the reduction in, you know, living conditions and the poor laws and all that. And this is really reducing standards and wages and then comes in, say, the steam engine or the power mill and things like that. Um, but it's not a direct response to it. So he's, again, arguing against these people who have the more linear sense of the Industrial Revolution as sort of one that's technologically determined, right? It's not just a modernization process happening. Right. Um, on 2.53, he has this uh, description of this where he says, through the wars, uh, a number of the trades have actually done quite well. You know, a lot of them are producing for the war, producing ships, producing uniforms, producing weapons, and so on. But it's really after the wars uh, at this point, the histories of different trades begin to diverge. The pressure of the unskilled tide beating against the doors broke through in different ways and with different degrees of violence. In some trades, the demarcation between an honorable and dishonorable trade was already to be found in the 18th century. That the honorable trade had maintained its position despite this longstanding threat may be accounted for by several reasons. Much of the 18th century trade was in luxury articles, demanding a quality of workmanship not obtainable by sweated labor. Moreover, in times of full employment, the small-scale dishonorable trade might actually offer better conditions than those of the society men, meaning union members. Um, but nonetheless, after the war, this, this distinction becomes uh, much more significant. And, and on 258, he writes about the growth of the dishonorable trade this conflict between the artisans and the large employers was only part of a more general exploitive pattern. The dishonorable part of the trade grew with the displacement of small masters employing a few journeymen and apprentices by large manufactories and middlemen employing domestic outworkers or subcontracting with the collapse of all meaningful apprenticeship safeguards except in the honorable island and the influx of the unskilled women and children with the extension of hours and of Sunday work and with the beating down of wages, peace rates and wholesale prices. The form and extent of the deterioration relates directly to the material conditions of the industry, uh, cost of materials and so on, uh, and the nature of the market. Uh, so he, you know, the chapter does a lot of work, I think, to kind of parse out the different paces and different trades by which this happens. But it seems like in the long view, it's a pretty uniform story. Right. Though I think it is interesting, this tension, because you see it all the time in contemporary labor movement problems um, between union and sort of a pr people going along the route that's been established and non-union or dishonorable or unskilled, whatever terms in the industry, this tension. He has this great quote in 244 where he's quoting from some journal. Um, he says, so Thompson writes that tr it was pretty rare for trade unions to attempt to organize both the skilled and the unskilled in the same trade before 1830. And But he says some of them, um, at their most Owenite, um, which we'll talk about at some point, adopted pro proposals embracing the laborers, and the distinction was very clearly marked nonetheless. And this is the quote he uses about this trade union that's trying to organize both laborers and more skilled workers. These lodges should, by degrees, consist of architects, masons, bricklayers, carpenters, slaters, plasterers, plumbers, glaziers, painters, and also quarriers, brickmakers, and laborers, as soon as they can be prepared with better habits and more knowledge to enable them to act for themselves, assisted by the other branches who will have an overwhelming interest to improve the mind, morals, and general condition of their families in the shortest time. So there's this sort of condescension in the sense of even the most idealistic or ambitious or progressive, whatever term you'd like to use there, organizations still sort of have this sense that laborers can't be organized on their own. They have to be sort of improved and civilized first, um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. What in the present day did that make you think of? Well, it just makes me, I mean, the whole chapter and the next chapter as well, the tension of sort of how to organize unorganized workers versus, I mean, I think of the building trades, especially when I think of sort of this tension between union and non-union workers and this, these debates about the degradation of the trade itself um, so there's all these sort of 
ethical and moral arguments linked into economic and political ones. Um, and what ultimately ends up happening is there's a, an island of protected union workers and then an immense number of people who are stuck outside of it who can't enter into the trades and who aren't organized who bring down the standards and suffer from these low, these lowered sort of safety and work conditions. Yeah, which often has a racial dimension in this country and actually in this story as well. Uh, again and again in these two chapters, as Thompson is talking about the glutting of the labor market, um, the presence of the Irish, mm-hmm. right, appear. I mean, he doesn't he's not exploring it directly right. here, but it appears over and over as a, as a key part of that. Do we have anything else on this chapter? Um, I don't think so. I, I did find it was interesting that we finally got a reason for why shoemakers keep popping up as radicals, which I'd been wondering about. In previous chapters, it's always these shoemakers that are sort of leading the charge on certain reforms. And he finally explains that they actually had incredibly bitter struggles. Um, he says, so they held a strike in 1813. And then he says on 255, the bitterness of the shoemaker struggles may be gauged by the extreme radicalism of many of their members throughout the post-war years. The ladies' men, which means men who made women's shoes, the ladies' men clung on to their position in the boom years, 1820 to 25, but the recession of 1826 at once exposed their weakness. The organized men were surrounded by scores of small, dishonorable workshops, where shoes were made up by, quote, snobs or translators. And he just goes on to sort of talk about their strike history. Um, what a, one worker told a scab was that he ought to have his liver cut out for working under price. Um, so it just to me, I'd wondered why this, to me, seemingly arbitrary industry was like the heart of these revolutionary radicals. But turns out it was, would you believe it, because of their own struggles. I do think, though, that there's an interesting thing about the skill, about skilled labor in general, which you see through the whole rest of the 19th century, even into the 20th, which is that, um, you know, where there's a kind of brotherhood of skill, uh, which produces really tight social ties and, you know, powerful norms around who does the work and how and under what circumstances, it can authorize very intense militancy and also even... Uh, you know, violent defense of the trade in a way that I think is pretty rare in other kinds of trade unionism. All of the skilled trades have a reputation, I think, deserved in some way for conservatism and uh, which we'll talk more about in the next chapter and, uh, you know, respect a certain politics of respectability at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they also give rise sometimes to the, some of the most violent trade unionism. I have a friend, I guess I'll shout him out on the on the pod, Rudy Betzel, who is a professor of history at uh, Lake Forest, who is a labor historian and writes about Sheffield, England, among other places, where I've learned from him that in the 1860s, um, Sheffield, if you've been paying attention, is the center first of cutlery production, and then uh, eventually develops into the center of the English steel industry out of that. And in the 1860s, skilled metal trades workers in Sheffield committed a series of acts called the Sheffield Outrages. We were there. It was just like them killing a bunch of scabs, basically. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, and blowing stuff up and so on. I mean, the LA Times bombing in this country. Right. That was iron, you know, that was iron workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the building trades. It's hard to mesh these two things politics of respectability and, you know, mass bombings or killings, but. Uh, I, yeah, but they somehow go together, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I think it's like, uh, you know, if you have a very powerful sense of uh, how employment should work, and it's a sense, it's not necessarily um, like communism, right? It's a sense of how employment should work that an employer actually can meet, and sometimes does meet, right? And on that basis, you like actually. Uh, have a standard that you can sort of enforce if it's then violated. Um, I think that that produces that uh, the history of this phenomenon is that that can produce, I think, a sense of violation uh, and anger and desire for retaliation. uh, That's quite different from what you might find um, for workers who, you know, have never had the experience of employers actually respecting their standard. Right, right. Should we move on to chapter nine? Yeah. Okay, cool. The Weavers. I thought this chapter was great. I agree. Where do you want to start? What should we start with? 
well, I guess let's just say uh, first, the I mean, weavers are skilled tradesmen, right? Um, and it, Thompson has taken the subset of chapter eight that he thinks is most important and given it its own chapter here. And most important, important in part because it was incredibly numerous. It was a huge trade. Yeah, right. I mean, weavers uh, produce, they take yarn, which has been spun from fiber, and they turn it into fabric, which is then sewed into clothing. Um, And the early English Industrial Revolution, obviously, is powered most of all by textile and so they're a kind of key, they play a key role, and it's also you know I mean there's this kind of long takeoff of the English Industrial Revolution, which creates this lengthy period before the time of this book that is kind of remembered as a golden age of weavers, and you know it seems like here we're in another of these cases where there's there's been a big debate over was there a weaver golden age was there not was it a myth, and Thompson kind of wants to say, look it's not totally real. But it's also not totally imaginary, um, and the people who pushed back on it have gone too far. I mean, this is classic Thompson. It's not totally real, and yet, because it feels real to people, it does have real effects. So I'm pushing back on yeah. the empiricists. Yeah, it's real enough. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> on 276, there's this passage where he's quoting someone describing a weaver village. And, you know, these kinds of villages are just scattered all across all across the countryside. I guess before I read it, it's worth saying also um, that this is outwork. It's domestic work, right? Um, so people in their homes take in, uh, take in yarn and have a loom in their, at least in many cases, and have a loom in their home um, and use that to produce the fabric that they then basically sell back to the employer. Um, so anyway, he's, he's, Quoting his description of a weaver community, quote, their dwellings and small gardens clean and neat, all the family well clad, the men with each a watch in his pocket, and the women dressed to their own fancy, the church crowded to excess every Sunday, every house well furnished with a clock, an elegant mahogany or fancy case, handsome tea services and Staffordshire ware, Birmingham potteries and Sheffield wares for necessary use and ornament, Many cottage families had their own cow. And then he says, yeah, okay, experience and myth are here intermingled. Um, in fact, probably only a minority of weavers attained this standard, but many aspired towards it. This is a period where there's um, kind of these personal relations, right, between master and man or the hierarchy of the trade. Um, it's conducted, you know, in this, at the kind of village level by these patriarchs who live and work together with their very tight-knit communities. And that's a kind of key component of the, the world of the weaver as, as it kind of constitutes a golden age or a partial golden age. Right, and it becomes a huge part of the story later on in the chapter because he's explaining why the objections to factories existed what, and for the weavers. And it's because he describes these factories where you know, young people are there without any parents supervising and they're mixing men and women, that women are actually being employed at higher rates than men. And so there's this other, you know, obvious sort of sense of um, loss of some sort of patriarchal centrality. So there are all these actual concrete reasons based in these traditions that then make factories not just a technological threat in some way, but actually I think he says a moral indignity to these workers. Which isn't to say that these earlier conditions were ideal in any sort, but it is a huge part of the story of the response. Yeah, and he, you know, um, wants to argue that there is a kind of socially conservative class consciousness that develops around weaving, uh, which then gives a kind of core, more than I think any other group of workers in this whole book, more than shoemakers, to the ideology of working class radicalism in the first third of the 19th century. Uh, Because there are so many weavers and because they undergo such a steep collapse in their standard of living. Right, I mean, and he has these quotes in here describing the collapse of their standard of living that are like pretty extreme he describes people literally starving to death 
um, as someone as the sort of city inspector or the village inspector sees them. Um, people who can't even lift the rags off of their bodies. Um, so there's a sense of, I mean, Thompson goes through a lot of work here to prove that this was not just some sort of increase in standard of living, that actually, as he often says, these were different generations of people who were experiencing the loss and then maybe the slight gain in the next generation. Um, but so he shows that quite ex ex um, extensively throughout the entire chapter. Yeah, Weaver trade unionism also is much weaker, right? He he says that at various points. It's much weaker than in other trades, um, in part because weaving. I mean, there are many different kinds of weaving work, but at its uh, kind of lower end, it's pre it's a pretty low barrier to entry, and so uh, it seems that what he, a big part of what he's saying in this chapter is that as um, the population is growing and people are being displaced, especially from rural, from agricultural production. Uh, the weaving workforce is especially plagued by the kind of labor surplus problem and has the, the weakest organizational capacity for dealing with it. On page 280, he describes the problem being 100,000 weavers doing the work of 150,000. Uh, this is the essence of the dishonorable trades, as later seen by Mayhew in London, a pool of surplus labor, semi-employed, defenseless, and undercutting each other's wages. The very circumstances of the weaver's work, especially in the upland hamlets, gave an additional impediment to trade unionism. Yeah, I mean, he describes it as not only agricultural workers, but also soldiers who've come back from the war, and again, Irish immigrants, are all sort of flooding into the lower end of this work and creating... The problem of, I think that he's quoting that guy, Mayhew, I think, as the observer, where he says something along the lines of overwork making for underpay and underpay making for overwork. And there are these, these sort of uneven amounts of labor happening while others are starving. And here, I mean, we said this talking about the last chapter, but as you, as you noted, he makes this point even more forcefully here, um, that this is happening before the spread of the power loom. So um, these are hand loom weavers um, and the power loom, you know, exists technologically by this time. And I think it's uh, generally kind of gestured at as, you know, obviously the reason that the weavers became obsolete, right? It's the power loom was invented. Um, but the collapse in their standard has happened before the power loom has become really widespread. And that is a key point for Thompson. I mean, hand, the hand loom weaver um, makes the initial catalog in the introduction, remember, of the, the groups that Thompson wants to rescue from the condescension of posterity. So that's, that's how you know it's important. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and he also goes through all sorts of things that, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting chapter. He goes through, like, different things that weavers started taking up as hobbies um, because they had the freedom to leave their loom at when they felt like it. Oh, I, I love that. I love that part of the chapter. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to read some? I mean, he quotes poets. He talks about people who became He talks about how they were avid bird watchers, you know, all these different things. I, I'm, I'm going to make you read some poetry in dialect, Alex. <laughs> I'm not going to read it. <laughs> I can't. I will mispronounce every word. <laughs> well, I mean, the key thing about this is... Um, you know, as with craftsmen in general, as Thompson talked about in the previous chapter, um, weavers, you know, they have some control over the pace of production, not um, not in the grandest, not in the grand scheme, right? Uh, I mean, they still, I mean, they are subordinated to more economically powerful actors, but in a kind of hour-to-hour -hour and day-to-day -day way, they have some self-determination in a way that a factory worker doesn't. Right. He So uh, one quote, giving an example of this, is on 291. He's quoting a factory child um, who said, was explaining why he preferred the loom to the mill. He says, I have more relaxation. I can look about me and go out and refresh myself a little. Then Thompson writes, it was the custom in Bradford for the weavers to gather in their dinner break at noon and have a chat with other weavers and combers on the news or gossip of the time. Some of these parties would spend an hour talking about pig feeding, hen raising, and bird catching. Your big three right there. <laughs> the big three. <laughs> Sports of the era. 
And now and then they would have very hot disputes about free grace or whether infant baptism or adult immersion was the correct and scriptural mode of doing the thing. I have many a time seen a number of men ready to fight one another on this topic. <laughs> I thought it was a really good, memorable quote. The whole next few pages, I thought actually were quite moving. Um, he says at the bottom of this page, but the closer we look at their way of life, the more inadequate, simple notions of economic progress and, quote, backwardness appear. Moreover, there was certainly a leaven among the northern weavers of self-educated and articulate men of considerate, excuse me, considerable attainments. Every weaving district had its weaver poets, biologists, mathematicians, musicians, geologists, botanists. The old weaver in Mary Barton is certainly drawn from the life. There are northern museums and natural history societies which still possess records or collections of lepidoptera built up by weavers, while there are accounts of weavers in isolated villages who taught themselves geometry by chalking on their flagstones and who were eager to discuss the differential calculus. In some kinds of plain work with strong yarn, a book could actually be propped up on the loom and read at work. Uh, and then he goes on to discuss weaver poetry, uh, which I think I'll spare all of us, including the listeners, uh, attempted reading. Because <laughs> Especially the listeners. <laughs> it is written in dialect. Um, but it's legible. You should go read it at page 292. Um, it's a few pages, actually, on the Weaver Poets. This set of traditions is very important, Thompson wants to say, for the forms of militancy that weavers develop and bring with them into the working class movement, you know, which can't express themselves effectively in economic organization, actually, right, but come to inform the larger forms of political and ideological activity that characterize, like, the 1830s in particular. Um, on page 295, he says, they had, like the city artisan, a sense of lost status as memories of their golden age lingered. And with this, they set a high premium on the values of independence. In these respects, they provided, in 1816, a natural audience for Cobbett. The vexed question of embezzlement of yarn apart, nearly all witnesses spoke to the honesty and self-reliance of the weavers. As faithful, moral, and trustworthy as any corporate body among his majesty's subjects, but they had, more than the city artisan, a deep social egalitarianism. As their way of life in the better years had been shared by the community, so their sufferings were those of the whole community, and they were reduced so low that there was no class of unskilled or casual laborers below them, against which they had erected economic or social protective walls. So this seems to be really the key difference that marks out the weavers from other kinds of artisans, is that, uh, in fact, exactly because they can't maintain any kind of um, control over the downward margin of their trade, unlike, you know, I don't know, wheel, wheelwrights or shipwrights or whatever, there are whole populations, right? whole villages and towns where everyone is engaged in trying to survive uh, as weavers. There is a kind of solidarity that extends uh, on that basis on a, like a much more broad you know, it develops into a kind of much broader form, I guess. Right. On that same page, further down from where you read, um, Thompson writes, It was as a whole community that they demanded betterment. In utopian notions of re redesigning society anew at a stroke, Owenite communities, the universal general strike, the Chartist land plan, swept through them like fire on the common. So this is real radicalism that we're going to see from the weavers um, in these pages. Yeah, I mean, a couple, like two pages later on 297, there's this amazing quotation from a Manchester silk weaver. Yeah, this quote is great. Uh, when asked whether wages ought not to be left to find their own level, a Manchester silk weaver replied that there was no similarity between, quote, what is called capital and labor. And then he continues, capital, I can make out to be nothing else but an accumulation of the products of labor. Labor is always carried to market by those who have nothing else to keep or to sell, and who, therefore, must part with it immediately. The labor which I might perform this week, if I, in imitation of the capitalist, refuse to part with it because an inadequate price is offered to me for it, can I bottle it? Can I lay it up in salt? 
These two distinctions between the nature of labor and capital, viz. that labor is always sold by the poor and always bought by the rich, and that labor cannot by any possibility be stored, but must by be every instant sold or every instant lost, are sufficient to convince, convince me that labor and capital can never with, with justice be subjected to the same laws. I mean, this is another of these incredible moments where you have a proletarian voice from you know, the decade of Marx's infancy producing some kind of key element of Marxism, right? I mean, Carl has been born here, but he's, I mean, he's 10 at most. Yeah, it's amazing. And in these things, I mean, what that, the context for that quote, I think, is these these sort of arguments that were going on about there were pushes for some sort of a minimum wage. And then there was the ideology, you know, that was being articulated by, say, Adam Smith, but also Thompson is quoting again, Hayek and so on sort of describing the sense that you shouldn't interfere with the labor supply and you shouldn't interfere um, with the, that demand. Um, and so instead you have these silk weavers arguing against the ideology of Smith um, just in the pages of this book, um, which I think is incredible to read. The next page has a similarly incredible back and forth that I feel obliged to read. Um, it's a different person. The Let's see. There's someone being heckled. Why doesn't one of us do one role and one of us do the other? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Sure. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll be the um I'll be the radical. Um so he's being heckled by one of the partisans of quote political economy, which here is being meant to mean the people who are advocating against the minimum wage and against any sort of combinations of workers. Um so he dramatizes the alternative views of social responsibility. And here's the back and forth. So here's, all right. The time of labor ought to be shortened and government ought to establish a board chosen by the masters and the men to settle the question of how wages shall be regulated. You would put an end to the freedom of labor? I would put an end to the freedom of murder and to the freedom of employing laborers beyond their strength. I would put an end to anything which prevents the poor man getting a good living with fair and reasonable work. And I would put an end to this because it was destructive of human life. Would it have the effect you wished for? Really good skepticism there, Gabe. I'm <laughs> sure the present effect of free labor is poverty, distress, and death. Suppose you were to raise the price very considerably and dot, 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 could not export your goods. We can use them at home. You would not use so much, would you? Three times as much and a great deal more than that because the laborers could be better paid and they would consume them. The capitalists do not use the goods, and there is the great mistake. If the wages were higher, the laborer would be enabled to clothe himself and to feed himself. And these laborers are the persons who are, after all, the great consumers of agricultural and manufacturing produce, and not the capitalist. Because a great capitalist, however wealthy he is, wears only one coat at once. At least, he certainly does seldom wear two coats at once. But a thousand laborers being enabled to buy a thousand coats where they cannot now get one would most certainly increase the trade. I thought that was just the most amazing back and forth um, of this book so far. Yeah, I mean, there are so many moments here. Um, it really it really kind of makes a case for a certain form of materialist history of political ideas. There are so many moments here where ideas that we associate with a particular thinker or a particular book emerge seemingly organically, right, in the context mm -hmm. of a social struggle. Can you elaborate on that? Are you talking about, you know, capital? Yeah, but not only even. Um, I mean, right there, what you just what we just read, as well as something from last week, also were moments where there are kind of proto-Keynesianisms that emerge. Right. I'm sure we could come up with other examples, too, where... Uh, you know, the kind of generative capacity of working class struggle actually hasn't and has always had an intellectual component. In, on page 303, um, the Weavers propose a tax on power looms, which, you know, I mean, like right now, I'm sure you can find people who argue for UBI based on taxation of robots, right? That's like an idea that exists in the present. Mm -hmm. um, right. In more or less exactly the same form. And like this one, misdiagnoses the problem, although, you know, misdiagnoses it in a kind of logical way. Say more. Oh, I just mean that, uh, well, so Thompson is saying that power looms don't actually cause the immiseration of the weaver. Right. Right. Um, and 
in the present, the precarity of workers is not actually caused by automation. I'm, I, I mean, I, I am a, a convert of Aaron Beninav's articles on automation in New Left Review, um, which we don't need to go down that road here. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> you know, I do think that you see a similar kind of, um, you know, fetishized but also understandable blaming of a, of a certain kind of appearance of machinery to explain shifts in social relations. And, you know, that, that appears quite early in this case. Right. He talks about two other proposals other than the tax on power looms. He says on 305 were the restriction of hours in power loom factories and the employment of adult male power loom weavers. The first of these was a powerful influence, leading many hand loom weavers to give their support to the 10-hour agitation. And he goes on to sort of talk about these two demands, which I think are pretty interesting because he's getting back to what the sort of traditional hand loom weaver family was like versus what's being done in these factories, which is the forced separation of families um, and the sort of increasing surveillance over work and control over time. Yeah, you also see here... Uh, glimmerings of what will be one of Thompson's most famous and important writings outside this book, which is his essay, Time, Work, Discipline, and Industrial Capitalism, which is about the emergence of the kind of consolidated workday that's timed and measured um, and overseen by, by the employer. And you see, in I mean, in the passage you just read and then also on the subsequent page, some of the struggles over that which he develops further in that essay. On 306, he writes, In the, quote, golden age, it had been a frequent complaint with employers that weavers kept St. Monday, in other words, treated Monday as a holiday, and sometimes made a holiday of Tuesday, making up the work on Friday and Saturday nights. According to tradition, the loom went in the first days of the week to the easy pace of plenty of time, plenty of time, but at the weekend, the loom clacked, a day too late, a day too late. Only a minority of weavers in the 19th century would have had as varied a life as a smallholder weaver whose diary in the 1780s shows him weaving on wet days, jobbing, carting, ditching and draining, mowing, churning on fine. But a variety of some sorts there would have been until the very worst days, poultry, some gardens, wakes or holidays, even the day out with the harriers. And then he quotes, I don't know if this is a song or a poem. So come all you cotton weavers, you must rise up very soon. For you must work in factories from morning until noon. You mustn't walk in your garden for two or three hours a day, for you must stand at their command and keep your shuttles in play. To stand at their command, this was the most deeply resented indignity, for he felt himself, at heart, to be the real maker of the cloth, and his parents remembered the time when the cotton or wool was spun in the home as well. There had been a time when factories had been thought of as kinds of workhouses for pauper children, and even when this prejudice passed, to enter the mill was to fall in status from a self-motivated man, however poor, to a servant or hand. So they're losing respect. They don't get any respect. <laughs> they don't get any respect. I mean, I know you wanted to talk about some contemporary stuff about de-skilling as So well. did you. Don't put okay. it on me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying this, this seems like the place to sort of start talking about that, even though conditions are wildly different between, say, the middle-class or white-collar occupations that might be getting sort of de-skilled today versus, I mean, conditions are not as bad as they were here. Yeah. But yeah, I'm curious what this chapter made you think about. Yeah, well, I mean, I find it um, hard to read this chapter and not think about the forms of de-skilling that are at work today on what have been forms of employment that are protected or have been protected for a long time by similar kinds of uh, guild practices. I mean, I'm an academic. Um, obviously, you know, academics have undergone really severe downward pressure on wages and working conditions. Oversupply of labor is not really the right way to think about it because the demand is there, but the kind of relations have been renegotiated. But, uh, you know, the ultimate effect is still similar to what we've seen in these last two chapters of, you know, a large group of people who are kind of massed outside the gate or whatever his, his metaphor was, um, you know, in the dishonorable trades, right? And in academia, that, that describes uh, adjunct contingent faculty working conditions, often grad worker working conditions. 
you know, I think obviously journalism has seen a really similar version of this. Tech is beginning to undergo it. I mean, my union is still called the News Guild, so it's very familiar sounding. Yeah, there you go. Um, I mean, I don't know. What, do you, what strikes you as similar and what strikes you as different between these cases? I mean, my immediate response is to think they're very different, right, of course, because... We're not starving to death. Right. Um, but as far as if we're being Thompson about it, then if there's felt loss, then that is real, right? And so if standards are declining, whether re- relative to different standards, they are not as bad, doesn't matter as much as the loss and the feeling of sort of a loss of independence, um, especially, which I think does seem very similar. Yeah, and obviously all of these problems occur here um, that we have in a similar form in, you know, in the Thompson chapters about the possibility and limits of solidarity across um, different positions of rank within the trade. Right. I mean, academia, this seems like a huge example of sort of our, our academics who are still within the protected islands, say, of tenure going to stand with the less skilled or the less protected adjunct or grad worker, or are they going to choose not to? I mean, I see this play out all the time. I feel like when I read about academic struggles. Yeah. I mean, I feel like clearly the answer so far has been not. Uh, I think there are signs that maybe it may change some. Not meaning that tenured faculty aren't going to stand with adjuncts. Well, yeah. I mean, they have not so far, you know. Right. Uh, I mean, lots of individuals have conducted themselves honorably. But uh, there's no stro- organization. I mean, the the guild capacities of tenured faculty um, don't contain the kind of collective power that would enable any kind of structural confrontation. And there has not been a major move, I think, to collectively of any kind to address that. Certain campuses, you've seen it. Like I say, certain individuals. Um, have tried to figure it out, but I don't think we're anywhere near it. Uh, I mean, in journalism, I feel like the question has some similar kind of hierarchical dimensions and somewhat it takes a somewhat different form, which you could talk more to probably. And tech, um, which I think of as being the other big sector like this, um, I feel like tech is in some ways more similar probably to academia. How so? Well, in that there are uh, fairly large cohorts of people who uh, have material and kind of symbolic purchase in, you know, the old order of things, right? They have stock options. They have some autonomy on the job. But the industry is obviously undergoing a long-term structural shift toward more precarious. I mean, this is just within the kind of like uh, you know, engineering labor, right? right. More, uh, more precarious, more precarious and exploitative and contingent forms of employment. Independent contracting, especially. Yeah. And again, I think, uh, you know, my sense is, and you should say more, but my sense is that tech workers organizing is about that. And it's a, a kind of effort to try to deal with that and bridge those kind of gaps across rank, but has not solved that problem yet. Right. I mean, I think it's similar to how you're describing academia, if I understand it, is that there are efforts being made, but it's still very uneven and sort of small, um, at least as far as I know. Um, The divisions are pretty, you know, they're material divisions. It's hard concretely to contact the people who are independent contractors. It's hard to know who to speak to on a giant tech campus in the same way that I think it might be somewhat hard to coordinate between adjuncts and grad students and faculty. Um, I've definitely heard from, I mean, one divide within journalism is between freelancers and staff. And I've definitely heard in this way that is an interesting debate, similar to sort of some of these debates Thompson is talking about, where I've heard people say in a meeting that we don't want to help freelancers, we being unionized um, staff members of of publications. Um, We don't want to help freelancers because we don't want to encourage people to go freelance um, because that is responsible for the decline of the industry. Um, Whereas I think, and lots of people think that that has nothing to do with it, that actually it's people are being forced into freelancing. um, And actually the they're being forced because the, the big problem is somewhere else completely, which is in 
how to build a sustainable model of journalism. Yeah, that's an insane analysis. Well, it came from someone (laughs) at the New York Times, which I think explains a lot of why you might think that um, if where you work is the New York Times and you don't really have exposure to what the average sort of world of journalism looks like. Um, Fortunately, in that meeting, they immediately got pushed back and everyone was like, I don't think if we give like a cheap, cheaper healthcare plan to freelancers, people are going to become freelancers just because it's such a good healthcare. Pl-. You know, it was completely absurd that you would be offering something so good that you're luring people to leave their staff jobs. Um, but yeah, it was a similar sense of, you know, the sort of guild thinking of are these people scabs and are they sort of infringing on our stability um, versus a sense that that's actually not where the problem lies. Then everyone's on the same side. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always, every time I have this discussion, I feel like I want to say, I want to pause and like really talk about uh, what works about mm-hmm. craft unionism. Not because I think it's good, but because I think, you know, on on the left, obviously everyone understands that craft unionism is bad, right? And like it divides workers and, you know, reinforces hierarchies of race and gender. Sure. And... All that is true and is the reason the craft unionism is bad. But um, it just is the case, right? That like, it's hard to get workers to act together. Uh, it's just like, if you work in a, in a stratified industry, it's very challenging to get people to engage in any kind of risky collective action. And, um, you know, the broader you draw the lines of solidarity, the harder it becomes, right? That is like, that is just the mechanics of how organizing is, basically, except under very unusual circumstances. And I think, I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like often people don't take seriously how deep the appeal of craft unionism is. Um, I will give an example here, a kind of controversial one, maybe. I don't know if I should do this. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. We're already an hour you know, I mean, in. So if someone has listened yeah, this far, right, they fine, deserve fine. good <laughs> anecdotes. I mean, you know, I my first real and most significant organizing experience was in grad, grad student organizing. Um, and where I was in grad school at Yale, we were in the same union as the clerical and technical workers on campus and the service and maintenance workers on campus. Everybody was a local of Unite here, but we were three different locals. Um, and ours, the grad student one, was the only unrecognized one. Uh, so, you know, the other unions paid for our campaign um, and basically, you know, showed a great, great deal of solidarity for us, all things considered, but with understandable limits. You know, they weren't going to burn their own contracts to, to save us or whatever. Right. And that, at times, I experienced with frustration, but I certainly understand and don't really blame them for. Uh, however, our own members, I think, simultaneously also both really wanted to, because it felt good to have solidarity with the people who clean their offices and labs, the people who... Uh, serve food in the cafeterias, the people who process their transcripts. That felt good until it started to mean that it they might not get to make every decision about the campaign, right? A kind of longstanding uh, kind of pro-democracy critique of the leadership of our union, which I think was true, was that uh, we... I was an elected leader of the union. We were accountable not just to the members, right, but to these other elements of this coalition. That was a fair and true critique. Um, it's also a craft unionist critique, right? Um, right. And, uh, you know, there was a genuine kind of trade-off, which I think played out in the CIO unions in a huge way um, that attempted industrial unionism, uh, right, attempted to bring workers together across lines of craft and occupation and race and generally became these, like, horrible bureaucracies, Right, Be, that they ran top down to try to carry that out. Right. So I just, you know, I, none of that is to say craft unionism is good, uh, I, or you know that the decisions I made in my union were all right or something like that. But rather that there are real structural tensions, I think, in, in negotiating this that I think Thompson actually draws out quite well, um, but that we have really yet to figure out in the kind of new environment of class formation. Mm-hmm. That seems like a really good place to end the episode. Great. Okay, so cool. I think we could just stop it there. All right. High five. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. 
Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack.